Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. So Salah just went over in the box. Uh, bit of a clash of uh, bodies really, Kev. Wasn't yeah. a penalty for me. Harry Maguire. Harry Maguire just stood up. Elbow, elbow. Not to be uh, confused with your dog, Maguire. We've got a couple of half-times here. Southampton versus Crystal Palace in Wilding. Half-time, Southampton nil, Crystal Palace won. A deserved lead for the away side. The goal came through Wilford Zahar in his 150th league game for the Eagles on 40 minutes. He duelled it under McCarthy at the near post. And Palace started off by far the better side. Sacco, MacArthur and Townsend could all have scored within the first 20 minutes. As for Southampton, well, Hoybeer came close twice for them. But in truth, they're offering very little so far. Half-time, Southampton nil, Crystal Palace won. Very good after timing from Kev there. He just saw the score that uh, Craig Catcart had put Watford 1-0 up uh, at Tottenham. And he said, if you fancied Watford there, fancied that. Didn't hear anything about it before the game that he actually fancied them. But uh, we'll have to give you that the benefit. That was my tip of the day in there before. Yeah, you're only telling me now, though, to give you the benefit of the doubt. There is another half-time. Alan Lewis is at Bournemouth Chelsea. Half-time, Bournemouth nil, Chelsea nil. Chelsea dominating possession for large parts of the half. Arthur Boric saving brilliantly from a Kovacic header from close range early on. Azard and Pedro also forced saves from the Bournemouth goalkeeper. But Bournemouth have had some really good chances of their own. David Brooks fluffed his lines in front of goal, not once but twice. And then right at the end, just a minute before the break, Stanislas with a lung-busting run down the right-hand side, collecting the ball from Josh King, but his shot was saved by Kepper. Half-time, Bournemouth nil, Chelsea nil. So lots happening, and uh, you know I, I think a lot is going to happen before the end of the night as well. Um, but you know the guy who was on earlier on giving out that we mentioned Brexit, I think he's wrong. There's just too much at stake in terms of Brexit, and I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line now by Laura McCallum, who's an expert in sports law, based in Scotland. She's here to talk about the massive and mostly unforeseen uh, impact that Brexit may have on the sport, especially professional football. Laura, how are you getting on? I'm very good, thank you. How are yourself, Johnny? Grand, grand. Uh, I think everyone's getting fairly fed up about Brexit-related um, conversation at this stage. Um, I'm, I'm sure you living in the UK, um, it's no different over there, but we're here to discuss the sporting ramifications of everything, and uh, you're particularly well-placed to talk to us about that. And just, I suppose, briefly at the top, uh, this could be pretty huge, I would, I would imagine, for sport in general in Britain, and I suppose more pertinently, football in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's certainly going to impact in various areas um, with regards to football, from immigration to how football clubs deal with minors, and also in relation to kind of financial benefits, financial revenues. I think they are going to be the three areas that um, clubs will feel the most, um, certainly in England, um, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, but even potentially in the Republic of Ireland too. Just at the moment, what are the rules for sort of non-EU players who want to play uh, in the UK and, you know, what, what, could, what could change in this regard? So currently, um, for any non-EU um, and EEA players, that's your European Economic Area players, um, we have a visa system in place that um, clubs have to go through a governing body endorsement system to get the player in. So basically, depending on what um, country the player is coming to, so I'll start with Scotland, because it's a bit more simpler with England. In Scotland, if the player is that they have to have played so many international caps for their national team, and that national team has to be ranked either 70 or above in the FIFA World Rankings. 
they go to an exceptions panel and that's for the club to be able to establish that that player is exceptional. And the way they do that is they have to be able to prove that the player is of a significant calibre to contribute to the development of the game in Scotland. Now, moving to England, it's a bit more complicated and it's very strict. And this is where I think most of the issues are going to arise. This is where players and clubs will feel it the most. So England has, uh, again, an automatic criteria system. So again, based on international caps, it's a bit of a tiered system depending on where your national team is ranked. If the player doesn't currently meet that, um, they go to an exceptions panel again, the way they do in Scotland. It's currently estimated that around two thirds of the players who are currently playing in the Premier League um, and who are um, of either EU or EEA nationality would currently not meet the automatic criteria. So they would have to go through the exceptions panel. Two thirds. Two thirds. And it's considered that the majority of those won't pass the exceptions panel. So I'll talk you through briefly a little bit about what it is they look for in this exceptions panel. So basically it's very, very strict and it's based on mainly transfer fees and wages. So basically the player, um, the club when bringing the player in has to pitch their transfer fee over and above the 75th percentile of all transfer fees being paid in the Premier League. That gets you three points. So it's a point system basically. So if you can hit four or more points, the general um, feeling is that you'll get your governing body endorsement. If you're below those points, the recommendation is that that endorsement should be rejected. So transfer fees over and above the 75th percentile, that's getting you three points. If you can pitch it between the 50th and the 75th percentile, you're getting two points. It then goes to wages. So the clubs have to pitch their wages um, in or around the top 20 Premier League earners. Um, Again, over and above the 75th percentile, three points. If you're in between the 50th and 70th, you drop down your points again. The other thing that the exceptions panel will look at is um, appearances in a top six league. So if the player is currently playing in a top six league and is actively playing, you'll get points for that. Um, and you'll also get points if the player has been actively playing in a UEFA club competition or an equivalent competition. So that might be your Copa Libertadores in, in South America, for instance. So you can appreciate that it's, it's very, it's very, very strict in terms of the criteria that has to be met for um, the exceptions panel. Without and being stupid, can this all change then? Pardon? Without being kind of stupid, can this all change in the event of, a, of Brexit? Can they just kind of change the rules to suit themselves? Well, potentially what's happening just now is there's talks with the UK government between um, the, all of the football um, stakeholders, that's your um, Premier League, your English Football League, um, the FA, the SFA and the SPFL up here. And basically basically what the government's saying is that, you know, going forward, we're not going to have preferential treatment for the EU. We want to keep this governing body endorsement system in place. We're open to changing it. So we're open to changing how it currently is just now because you'll appreciate, Johnny, that is very strict and, you know, not all clubs are going to be able to pitch their transfer fees, you know, as high um, as, as some of the, the, the highest transfer fees that are currently being um, earned in, in the Premier League. You know, it's, it's going to widen the gap. It's going to widen the competitive gap, I think, personally, for clubs in, in the Premier League and you're going to leave clubs behind. 
So the government has said that they are open to changing this criteria, but it's for the football stakeholders, so the organisations that I've just mentioned, including the Players um, Player Football Association, to get together and come up with criteria. Um, but the problem that you have is that you'll appreciate that the national associations have a different agenda to your leagues. So the leagues are interested in basically having the best league possible, having the best competitive league possible and, and selling a product there. Whereas the um, national associations are all about homegrown players in the national team. So it may be difficult for those organisations to find some common ground. Yeah, but and I, I guess on that latter point as well, is there potential kind of positives for English football and the national team? And I guess we talk a bit you know, recently about the fact that there aren't that many young, promising British players at the moment. Could that be a strange kind of um, positive to come out of all of this and that, you know, English clubs are just going to have to grow their own uh, youth players earlier than they would maybe otherwise? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, one of, that's one of the potential outcomes. One of their arguments for that, or certainly the league's arguments, is that there are other countries around Europe who have a quota system. So the FA would like to see a, a quota system, for instance, whereby you're only allowed to field so many, um, you know, foreign players. The rest have to be homegrown. Now that's seen in Italy and Serie A. Russia have done the same thing. I think Turkey is another country that's done it. And what they're basically saying is that in Italy, there's no evidence that it actually helps um, playing minutes for British players. So it's not as if Italian players are playing more because of this quota, and it's also not helping the national team. The Russian situation is a little bit different, whereby it is helping available minutes for Russian players, but it hasn't had any positive effect for the Russian national team. So they're looking at different arguments here. Um, but one of the things that they have said, the government, which I find quite interesting, is that they no longer want the home countries to have a different um, governing, governing body endorsement system. So remember how I just said that Scotland's um, system is different from England's. Um, Northern Ireland and Wales operates the same system as Scotland, but the UK government want them all to be aligned, basically. Um, so that could be potentially quite interesting. Yeah, it's not the first time we've heard the word alignment in the whole Brexit debate, but I suppose if we're bringing this closer to home, and specifically the Republic of Ireland, um, this could be really intriguing. I mean, I was speaking to you before we went on air about Gavin Bazuna, who's uh, gone from Shamrock Rovers, or certainly going from Shamrock Rovers to Manchester City. Now, Gavin Bazuna doesn't turn uh, 17 until next month. Um, so, it, you know, seemingly this might not actually um, be a possibility um, a year down the line, because obviously they're both in the EU at the moment. But with the amount of young players who've gone over to um, Britain historically from the Republic and the North, but in specifically the Republic, uh, this could be a game changer. Yeah, so basically, um, as you and I were discussing beforehand, um, FIFA's regulations on the status and transfer of players are the regulations that govern the entire transfer system as we know it. They currently have a, a rule within the regulations, Article 19, which is in relation to the transfer of minors. Now, the general rule is that international transfer of players are, is only permitted if the player is over the age of 18. But there's three exceptions whereby it will be allowed if the player's between um, 16 and 18. And that is basically um, if the player's parent is moving over here because of work that's unconnected to football, 
um, if the player um, is moving to a club that's within so many kilometres of the border of the of of um, so so many um, kilometres away from his home. So you'll appreciate that the club needs to be very close to the border. But the main one is that it's an intra-EU transfer, so it's a or an or a European Economic Area transfer. So it has to be basically um, club to club. So a club, say a club in Italy to a, a club in England, that would be allowed because it's intra-EU. Once the UK leaves the United Kingdom, that will basically Once that it leaves will, the EU rather. Yeah, sorry. Once once the um, once the United Kingdom Kingdom leaves the EU and Brexit triggers. Um, that rule will no longer be enjoyed or that exception will no longer be enjoyed this by is, clubs. This is really intriguing because, I mean, again, without being stupid, how close to the border can you be? I mean, technically, if you were from Dundalk, which is not far at all from the border with Northern Ireland, would that make you more liable to be eligible to join um, a club uh, in Britain as a, as a minor than it would if you were, say, in Cork? It would need to be a club that was actually so. So the club that you're going to actually has to be within so many kilometres of the um, of, of your domicile, basically. Right. So, for instance, for for us in Scotland, that would be it is very very difficult. Newcastle would maybe get a look in if you were in a town that was literally right, right, right on on the border, right. and even that, it's only certain ones because obviously depending on where you are across the border. Um, that kilometres. I can't remember off the top of my head how yeah. many kilometres it is, but it has to be very, very close. I mean, my prediction is that the you know the, the League of Ireland could potentially benefit from the fact that the transfer of minors rule will no longer be enjoyed by the um, clubs in the UK. That, that could be absolutely huge, Laura, because uh, you know for years and years, clubs, uh, you know, the nursery clubs have sold on players at a very young age, 14, 15, 16, and so forth. Uh, obviously, we're seeing that it's harder and harder for them young players to you know, break through. But strangely enough, Niall Quinn, um, who obviously went over when he was quite young himself, um, he's been mentioned quite a lot recently. Daniel MacDonald had an article in the Irish Independent today about his attempts to kind of revive the, the, the game here. But one of the points Niall Quinn has made is that, you know, we could keep players at home here until they were 18. And he also did mention, now this might sound a bit far-fetched, but he mentioned the fact that Ireland could become something of a holding point for foreign players with a view to them then going to England uh, down the line, in that a foreign player could come over here, maybe stay in Ireland for some time, um, with a view to going to Britain. Would that be kind of uh, a possibility, or is, was it, does it sound a bit far-fetched, in the sense of maybe players come from South America who could come here en route to Britain? Um, well, well, for instance, players from, from South America, unless they had dual passports, wouldn't be able to do that because a club from South, if, if, if they don't hold, they have to hold an EU passport to be able to do that. Certainly, um, players from the EU may come over to the, the Republic of Ireland, stay a few years and then go to England. Um, I'm not sure if they would do that, though. I'm not sure if they would just, you know, stay in, stay in one of their own leagues um, in their home countries and then move to um, the United Kingdom when they turn 18. Um, it's certainly an interesting one, but certainly the South American players won't be able to um, take advantage of that unless they do have a dual passport. And, and you know what? A lot of them do have dual passports. Yeah, but it's I just the way you're explaining it to me here, there hasn't been much conversation over here in, in a sporting context 
this could be really, really enormous for the future of the Premier League and obviously for British football itself. If, it's, if it could, in worst case scenario, be that difficult for them to bring in foreign players in what is an incredibly globalised league. Yeah, uh, no, 100%. And I think that's why the, the UK government is saying to the football stakeholders, you know, get your heads together, tell us, tell us what it is you want. We're open to, you know, relaxing this criteria but you need to, you know, find a solution that you're all happy with and, and come back to us. And what about British players then who want to play within the EU? How does that work? So um, in terms of British players moving out of the UK to a club within the EU, it will depend on what particular country it is they're looking to go to. There's not actually many countries who operate the same system that we do. Um, the majority of them simply have quotas in terms of the number of non-EU EEA nationals that they can um, register, and again, a quota for how many they can field. Um, so what it would basically mean is once that quota is filled, if they've not been able to get you know bodies out, um, the, the players won't have the opportunity to go over there because their quotas will have been met. Fascinating, and it, 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 it does sound like this... Um long, long history of, of young players going over to England. Um, and I guess you remember like Cesc Fabregas uh, as, as a particularly big example, but you know all the kids from Ireland who went over so young as well that there is a strong, strong chance this is going to come to an end. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think so. Um, so long, as, as I said, the, the, the government has specifically said that there will be no preferential treatment for EU players um, or Irish players, they have said as well. So in terms of the transfer of minors, um, unless I, the, that, I don't see that being relaxed at all. Um, so in terms of players in between 16 and 18, your young players, um, I think that will come to an end, if, as, especially if there's no deal struck, if there's no you know, kind of type of single market um, deal that allows free movement for, for EU citizens. Um, I don't see that being an issue. I think potentially for Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales, because the Premier League is not able to you know, look at young talent from out with um, the, the United Kingdom anymore, I, I suspect they may start looking more heavily um, towards Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. I mean, that's just my opinion, um, but th- because obviously the United Kingdom still enjoys free movement within itself. Um, so I mean that that that's one that's one point as well that could be a potential negative for the other home countries. I guess yes or no. Did the people who voted for Brexit in Britain think of all this? Pardon, say that again. The people who voted for Brexit, you'd think you just imagine now and maybe um, speculate that the Premier League's future wasn't uh, at the top of their agenda, but it's 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 going to be one hell of an interesting ride. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think the, the, the entire process has been an interesting ride. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million for, com- for coming on, Laura, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the invite. Bye for now, Johnny. Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. You're welcome along to the football show. Johnny Ward standing in uh, with Kevin Kilban. We've standing four- in. Well, pretty uh, Spartan. You- uh, I think it's my second football show. I think you're part of it. You're part of the Joe Malloy is the man. You're part of the family, as as people would say now. It's a big family, a huge family. I'm a ward. Yeah. You know. 
good Irish Catholic family. Absolutely, good Irish Catholic family. Um, Kevin Kilban is obviously here. Uh, we have four games in the Premier League at the moment. Both of us are kind of struggling to actually concentrate here because the Liverpool-Leicester game is pretty engrossing and yeah. the second half has just started and uh, they've removed a lot of snow off the pitch, uh, but it's one all at halftime. We're going to have Andy Mitten on and Andy uh, is 30 years uh, editor of the Manchester United uh, fanzine United We Stand, which I think is an incredible going really. Uh, I obviously started off myself um, in print journalism before that I used to write the going out a match program and we've actually a similar enough story myself and Andy but it's, it's just the fact that how did you how did you get into to what did we write a piece for the going United program yeah I, I started going to going United games when I was about 15 and uh, I remember I don't know was it the teachers in school but I had a lot of uh, English teachers because one of my English teachers he he um, sadly his his daughter passed away and he took time off um, on a couple of occasions, and I ended up having seven English teachers in um, secondary school. Um, but one of them, Aileen Walsh from Mount Bellew, um, which is very close to where I'm actually from, she was really um, influential, and so were one or two others. And uh, I just got into English, really loved it. And then I started writing for the match program. And um, I was a terrible writer at the time, like maybe I still am, but it was just you had to learn through the trade. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind it's a great of. Great way in, though, isn't it? It's a great oh, way yeah. in well, yeah. I remember. The first time at an article going out match program, I couldn't sleep the night before. I was so excited. <laughs> there were probably about three hundred people at the game, and now if you had an article in, in the biggest paper in the country, or that you know you, you mightn't even buy it. You know, just you get more cynical as you get older. But uh, have you gotten cynical as you get older, Kev? Oh, yeah. I think we probably all do to an extent, but you still got to enjoy the the finer things in life, John. Even the lesser things in life, I suppose, haven't you? You do. Um, yeah. A comment in. Um, I should also remind you that uh, this is available off the ball and. All uh, our football tonight is available on our social channels, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Uh, we did get a text in, Kevin Limerick, goals are scored but keepers never let them in. And that's the hashtag goalkeepers union. Um, I will ask Kevin why the FA Cup is being refed differently. Uh, the yellow card count is very low. But before all of that, there has been a goal at Bournemouth Chelsea where Alan Lewis is standing by. It's Bournemouth 2, Chelsea 0, and Bournemouth have doubled their advantage. A mistake from David Luiz giving away possession in his own half. The ball fell to King, he dinked it over the top for David Brooks. He cut inside on his right foot, finished it with his left. It's Bournemouth 2, Chelsea 0. This is another um, occasion of Kevin telling me that it was well, a great bet after the fact. I think this is three times now in the last few days. Millwall against Everton. Well, I would say Stephen Doyle and I were talking today. Stephen Doyle and I were in the office and we were chatting away about what do you fancy tonight and things like this. And um, We both said we fancied Bournemouth. Good judge, Stephen, on the, on yeah, the football bet. And we both said that we didn't necessarily fancy Tottenham. So Watford drawn or bet was a, was a decent shout as well. Did you back either of them? Um, I've done a little acca tonight, actually, yeah. Done a little Acker and Bournemouth being one of those in the Acker and Watford being another one in the Acker, yeah. Another little chance for Leicester here at the yeah. edge of the box. Um, oh, oh Vardy. A chance. Vardy, shoot! Oh. oh, unbelievable. Liverpool Liverpool are shaky at the back here. Yeah. That actual text was, ask Kevin why in the FA Cup are things being refereed differently? The yellow card count is very low. There was a clear foul by a Millwall player in the first half of the weekend, noted in the commentary and no, bu no booking. And apologies, Paul from Cork, I was a bit slow getting to that text. Yeah, um, yeah it, was, it was probably talking about me being in commentary. I, I don't recall the foul, actually, but um, yeah, I, I'd probably see that. I remember at the, at the weekend in that Everton, uh, or the Millwall-Everton game, there, there was a lot of 
challenges you're probably expecting to um, to be booked. I would have thought probably Premier League level. I think that was the case, yeah. And some of them maybe a little bit cynical. Some of them perhaps maybe a little bit uh, over the top uh, as well. Um, maybe the, the conditions didn't help it the weekend. There's a lot of players going to ground and it was wet. It was it was it wasn't a great day for it. And sometimes. You'd know yourself when anyone can relate to it when you're playing at Sunday League level or whatever level that we're playing at. When the weather isn't great and you, you know, there's a chance for you to go to ground at times. I think referees should have a little bit more, unless it's totally reckless where people yeah. have been, you know, totally cleaned out and injured, and there's a real chance a player could get injured badly. I think there has to be a bit of room for leniency with with uh, with refereeing sometimes. Yeah, we watched the. Um at Brentford game uh, the other night, yeah. and uh, I have to say, like there was, it was just there have been some magical games this weekend in the FA Cup. It makes you sad that it's fallen from grace so much. Yeah, it was. I I, I heard Dave Mack was on last week. Dave was Dave was on with Nathan, and Dave was talking about the Carabao Cup overtaking it. I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I understand it to... I think, well, you you and I would be football fans, so you and I would, would have probably Sky Television at home. Most football fans, if you're football fans and you're watching the Premier League, you'll have Sky or BT. Sky, predominantly, if you're watching the Carabao Cup. But a lot of the casual football fans won't have Sky Television, so you, you, you're waiting for football to come on terrestrial TV, and you're only going to get your FA Cup on terrestrial TV now. So... That's where it makes a big difference for it. Champions League, I suppose, as well. You're getting Champions League football on terrestrial TV. So that's what makes it, I think, it does make it extra special what you're watching. Champions League, you're watching the very best and you're still watching FA Cup football. You're getting it on terrestrial television. So that's where I would think it would get into the people's psyche a little bit more than the Carabao Cup somehow. I do remember, obviously, I didn't grow up in England, but I certainly grew up as a Liverpool fan. And I remember Liverpool had this horrendous run in the FA Cup under Graham Souness where they lost to a lot of minnows actually like two or three years in a row that was after, that was after winning it. they won it on the soonest didn't they in 92 uh, uh, it? speaking of Liverpool it's actually insane what's going on in this game I don't know how Leicester haven't scored It's uh, there was a goal line clearance by Alisson there we're seven minutes into the second half but back in those days Kev the two F good chances Leicester two good chances off, yeah. the FA Cup was um, it was it was almost a be all and end all yeah. I, I, in, in, in itself and when when Cantona got the goal in the cup final, the the infamous white suits Liverpool wore that day, yeah. I think it was as gutted as I've ever been after any match. And it is sad that the Champions League effectively has killed it to the extent that it has, and the money being yeah. finishing so far up in the league. But just we'll get to the game last night because you were in St James's Park. Was, that must yeah. have been an interesting experience. Last night at the game, um, it was it was it it was great to be at the game last night as well. I don't think it was a great game, but it was mm. great to be at. Um, it, I think you certainly when you're coming in here tonight is where you want to chat around it. And the, the the biggest thing I took away from last night's game, yes, it was a great result for Newcastle. And, and I think sometimes we are slow to 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 give credit to, to sides like Newcastle when they beat one of the top sides. But the thing I took away was how poor Man City were. Just why were they so well, poor? I, I look at the way that they set up. It was very much in keeping with how City set up four three three. Um, Laporte, John Stones are two centre halves. You have Danilo at left back, uh, Cal Walker at left at right back. Um, central midfield, holding midfielder Fernandinho. I would I would think it's as close to the strongest lineup that he could play right now. Guardiola last night. He had David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne either side of Fernandinho up front. Aguero through the middle, left and right side with Sané and Sterling. So, in my mind, I'm thinking. How can this team not score goals? How can they not create goals? That's what I was looking at immediately. And they got off to the perfect start. 25 seconds into the game last night, they score. 
slightly fortuitous how it, how it came about really, but Aguero's record against Newcastle is phenomenal. I think that was 15 in 13 games now, 10 in his last six appearances. Amazing record he has against Newcastle. Um, but after that, they just didn't play. They didn't move the ball quick enough. And something that Guardiola spoke about after the Huddersfield game, I, I mentioned this early on in, in the news round, he spoke about them about in the relation to them being too lethargic, taking too many touches on the ball. You'd always feel, again, anyone that would have watched football over the years as well, the best sides, playing one and two touch, moving the ball quickly. You've got runners off the ball. I think it just looks so much better. It looks great on the eye. Maybe if he, I understand sometimes I'd be, it would have been a wide man growing up. I would have loved to see someone put the foot on the ball, try and beat a player, try and go on the outside. But City didn't have that. Raheem Sterling and Sané didn't have that into the game last night. So... If that's not coming, are they moving the ball quick enough? And Kevin De Bruyne was a huge disappointment. I, I thought, I, he last he night. looked a shadow of the player that he can be. Yeah, body language was wrong. So was Silva. The worst performance, I would say, by Guardiola's side. Silva's had a couple of fairly disappointing games of late. I boys. think just I think City in general. Laporte mm. was awful. Why? De, like Danilo. Danilo is dreadful. Cal Walker looked looked really poor. Particularly the, the left side defensively looked really really poor, uh, Johnny. But they should be after the Liverpool game. I mean, they should just be on a roll now. Yeah. But you think about the tempo that that game was played at. Now, again, go back to the, my original point. Give a little bit of credit to Newcastle. You mentioned it early in the news round. They conceded so early. And when you're in that position, you've got a game plan. You've set up a way to, to try and get a result. You concede so early. Sometimes, invariably, it does happen where that game plan is gone then. You've, you're trying to chase the game a little bit and you become more and more exposed as the game goes on. But what Benitez has put into those players at Newcastle is stick to the game plan. Do not... Come away from it. We will get chances. Something will happen for us. Do not go and get beat four, five, six. And that was how they got the result last there night. There were two just kind of nothing goals in that. One just kind of fell to Rondon. And then obviously, you know, Fernandinho made a yeah. complete howler. Um, it was just one of those instances where you're like, how, how could Newcastle get two goals? Yeah. There? And they did in about 10 minutes. I mean, I, I, you ask in there before, Johnny, how, how has it happened? And Huddersfield didn't play the same sort of a similar sort of way than than what Newcastle. Did. What what Huddersfield tried to do? They tried to condense Newcastle in one one half of the pitch or one side of of a half. If if you get what I'm saying, so the back forward are shuffled over. Get your distances right. Usually five eight yards from each other, ten yards perhaps maybe away from each other as, as a back four across the pitch, trying to shuffle right over. And what City were trying to do on the day, because Huddersfield's right back was tucked right in. They were trying to free up Leroy Sané on the left-hand side, so they were keeping him... Just, just, I think the, the message was, just stay as wide as possible. Then they were trying to get a Fernandinho or even um, right-sided centre-half that day. I think it was Otamendi. Switch to play quickly. Try and get Sané in a one-on-one -on -one position. Free him up so he can get at them. And It worked at times against Huddersfield. That's what they were trying to do again. So it was Sterling that was playing in, as an inside forward on the right-hand side for, uh, for, to uh, for, for City. And Sané was staying wide, but, but Newcastle were playing with the back five. They weren't playing against the back four predominantly that Huddersfield had. So DeAndre Yedlin almost had a man-to-man -man marking job. So it was just a, they were, they'd become a back five. The two wing-backs rarely ever got forward. So it was a man-to-man -man marking job. So the luxury they had then was the three centre-halves were just staying so narrow between the width of the goal. So they were never coming exposed centrally through, through, uh, through Sergio Aguero. And there was no space in behind because they were playing so deep. So the, the game plan that Benitez had 
yes, it worked. It wasn't a great watch. It wasn't a great spectacle. It wasn't brilliant watching Newcastle. But what he did is stay in the game, stay in a nice the space, and they got they got the the look a little bit through the game as it progressed. We've uh, a very um, appropriate text coming in here from Dermot, a Millwall fan, uh, which is about VAR because uh, Liverpool should have been given a penalty there. Uh, I think it might have been Keita taken down. Uh, wasn't given. Uh, still 1-1 at Anfield. Dermot asks, Everton fans and Kevin himself were whinging about no VAR at the den at the weekend. Mm. Does he agree it robbed Sheffield Wednesday of a clear penalty against Chelsea? Well, no. It, well, it, well, I don't know. Well, it, it, Chef Wednesday got a penalty and it was overturned, which was quite right. And then, was it William got fouled at the other end to, to win the penalty for, uh, for, for Chelsea? So that, that overturn was mm. brilliant. The one thing I, I, I've not necessarily understood is why certain televised games have had VAR and, yeah. and others haven't. We were, we were watching the game of the night. Barnet, the non-league side, they go in front in the match and Brentford's wide man goes on a run, clear dive. I mean, it was it was so bad, the dive. It, it, was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And that's what's costing a non-league side like Barnet. We, we know an extra 50 grand, an extra 100 grand for, to them, meaningless to a Premier League side. But to a non-league side, it's huge money for them, huge revenue. And the referee, of because there was no VAR at that game, it was a televised You're game. You're not going to blame the ref so much because no. at, at real time it's hard no. to call? I wouldn't. But why isn't VAR in, at the game, certainly for the handball, for, uh, for in the Everton game as well, why isn't VAR in the big televised games? That's something that I, I just I, I couldn't tell you. I, I, genuinely, I've asked the question of others because there was a Chelsea game, I think, in the third round that didn't have VAR in. So the technology is there. Clearly, it's there. They've used it at that stadium in the past. I think every televised game, if they're showing it as the rule in the FA Cup, should have VAR because it's it's unfair. It's a disadvantage across the competition. We have an update uh, from the Spurs Watford game. This was another game that Kev predicted um, after a few goals went in. Guy Swindles. <laughs> Spurs nil, Watford one. It's been all Spurs since the beginning of the second half. Lucas Moura was on for Aurier. He's had a half chance, brilliant ball uh, from the back by Alderweireld. First touch was good, second less so from Mora. But the chance of the match has fallen to Lorente. And first uh, from the Sissoko cross, he forced a fine save from Foster, but with Foster prone on the ground and the o goal open, he somehow managed to knee the ball over from three yards. Spurs nil, Watford <coughs> one. It's been another goal in Bournemouth, Chelsea, Alan Lewis. It's Bournemouth 3, Chelsea nil, and that should just about do it. Joshua King with his second of the game, another really well-worked goal. Nathaniel Klein with a beautiful ball down the right-hand side, finding Junior Stanislas. He crossed into the middle where, Judy, where Joshua King had all the time in the world to finish past Kepa. It's Bournemouth 3, Chelsea nil. I would say as well, just off the back of that, because you are obviously taking the piss out of me here, I did say Bournemouth, I did say Watford, but I did actually say Southampton would beat Crystal Palace, so... You do get the, the occasional one wrong, John. You know, you've got to hold your hands up sometimes. How did Arsenal get on last night? I'm just trying to recall. 1-2-1. One, one. Um, Aubameyang scored late against Cardiff, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, because all the other teams at the top are either losing, uh, are not going to win, or actually uh, didn't win in that. Man United obviously drew um, at home. Uh, Chelsea are almost certainly going to lose. Spurs are losing. Yeah. Manchester City lost at Newcastle. Liverpool are, at the moment... Uh, failing to be Leicester City could be uh, top, four, top four all yeah, potentially there with no wins it's, it's, it's incredible really isn't it you wouldn't have predicted that it's, it, it's these midweek games after the FA Cup Johnny it's I know there's been a lot of changes inside sides are trying to rest players Liverpool didn't have the FA Cup at the weekend of course being out but I don't know these midweek games 
changing weather. I don't. I. I don't know what it is. You. You can throw anything into the, into the hat for this one. But we'll get an, actually an update from uh, Liverpool Leicester Shane Pennington. It's Liverpool 1, Leicester 1 and the natives again restless here at Anfield because Leicester have started this second half pretty well and Liverpool are pretty poor in possession so far. Leicester have had the good chance at the half so far, a free kick into Harry Maguire who evaded the offside trap, he headed it back across goal and Firmino in trying to intercept it ended up diverting the effort towards his own goal and Alisson had to make a sharp save from six yards out. Otherwise Liverpool, like I say, struggling to get going in this second half. It's Liverpool 1, Leicester 1. I think the, the main thing from this game, Stan, that we were speaking before the game and we were, we were thinking where, uh, or who's going to play it right back for Liverpool. It's Jordan Henderson that actually played right back. We were thinking it could have been uh, Jorginho Wijnaldum. The one thing, whoever it was going to be playing at right back for Liverpool, I just immediately said, get Damari Gray on that left wing. Now, the, the game starts and Damari Gray is playing as a number 10. And... We got about 25 minutes, half an hour into the game, Liverpool totally dominating, overrunning um, Leicester all over the pitch. Claude Puel, in his brilliance or in his bloody, um, I don't know I don't know what he's thought in the end, but he's thought, right, I'll tell you what, I'll put Damari Gray out on that left wing. Since Damari Gray's gone on the left wing, there's an out ball now for Leicester. They look so much better going forward. They're able to get out. The left-hand side is where they've caused problems for Liverpool. That just looked the the clear decision to Jordan be made. Jordan Henderson is not a right back. Neither was Milner. Either. No, exactly. I have to give it to you. You did say that before the game. <laughs> thanks, yeah. thanks, Johnny. Thanks, um, Johnny. There's been another goal actually, Southampton Palace, and we've uh, Ian Wilding there. It's now Southampton one, Crystal Palace one. The home side equalising on 76 minutes. Great one-touch football from the left-hand side. Eventually, target found Ward-Prowse on a plate for him outside the six-yard box. Who did the rest? It came after Zahar's opening goal for Crystal Palace on 40 minutes, and up to that Southampton goal, it was Crystal Palace who were well in control. Just a couple of minutes earlier, they had a header cleared off the line from Sacco, but Southampton, against the run of play, with their third attempt on target, have scored. Southampton one. Crystal Palace one. Uh, we want to point you in the direction of the Legends Rugby event that's on this Friday. It's Ireland v England with proceeds in support of a very, very worthy cause in support of Doddy Weir, uh, the former Scotland great who's battling motor neuron disease. Gordon Darcy, Shane Bourne, Mick Galway, Malcolm O'Kelly, Josh Lucy, uh, Jason Leonard, Mike Tindall will all be playing. Kickoff is 7pm at the RDS and get your tickets now at ticketmaster.ie forward slash Irish Legends. We're going to go to the break, but after this we have Andy Mitten coming on talking Manchester United. Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. And you're welcome back. We're now joined by Andy Mitten. And Andy, I just want to start and ask you, I was just looking up your Twitter page earlier. Does it feel like 30 years since you started as editor of United We Stand, the fanzine, or has it just flown by? It's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. It was 30 years in, in, in October this year. I mean, I was a 15-year-old kid, and I look at those first issues, and it was absolutely terrible. I don't know why anyone paid money for it, but it... it picked up pretty quickly, you know, by the time I was 17, 18, it was, it was selling well and that's when I decided that I'd like to be a journalist and I went to do a very good journalism degree in a town Kevin knows well, in fact it's a city, Preston. It's a town Andy, it's still a town, I tell you, it is a town, town values. Oh no, it, it does have city status, but it, it, it's it's uh, it's actually a town in my mind. Yeah, it is. Funny enough, Andy, my own story is very similar because I started writing for the Galway United Match Program at fifteen, and that's how I decided I wanted to get into journalism. But like, obviously, match programs are kind of like all prints are 
maybe facing an uncertain future. What about fanzines? We're going well. I've just had an email before from uh, Rob, who's done the subscriptions for 27 years, and he said we've just hit our highest ever level of printed subscriptions. It's good at the ground. It's tough on the newsstand because we sell United, we stand, even in Ireland, we, we sell it through Eason's there. But if you'd have said to me 29 years ago, United, we stand would still be going and would be profitable because the opposite of profitable is losing money. And I always maintain that I make my proper money from my proper journalism, from my columns and my books for people. But United, we stand can't be run at a loss. And what happened just before Christmas was we printed a copy and the next day, Manchester United changed managers and I thought we've got to have something with Solskjaer on the cover so I was just very honest with readers and I said look it'll cost us £400 to reprint the front cover because we hadn't printed the insides just the cover the colour section and I said it's up to you we've designed this cover do you want it yes or no and we just had a surge of people subscribing and what I said to them was we don't need likes on Facebook or Twitter because unfortunately, I can't turn around to the printers and say, I can't pay this month, but it's really popular on social media. Mm. And we have a problem with that on, on, on Twitter. I remember once Juan Mata retweeting our front cover to 4 million followers. We didn't pick up one new subscriber. So that shows a different demographic of people who go on social media, whereas our readers tend to be hardcore match-going Manchester United fans. They're in, we've got a lot. Has there anything changed in terms of your relationship with the club and players and manager even as well through that time? Because a lot's changed at United over that 30 years or so, hasn't it? So what, what has changed around maybe your, your writing and, and maybe the, 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 the readership, I suppose, of the magazine as well or the fanzine? Well, I'd like to think I've learned to write properly because when I look at the early issues, it's, it's <laughs> dreadful. And we've got really good writers. I think it's become more professional. Um, we're in a position where we can we can pay our writers. I don't think anyone does it for the money at all. And we have writers who refuse to take money off us. You know, Jim White, who writes for the Daily Telegraph, has refused money off us for 26 years now. And I've said to his wife, you know, I promise if you ever fall on our times, I will guarantee that things will be all right for Jim. I'm not sure I'll be able to maintain that. In terms of the relationship with the club, I think it depends who you ask. I mean, I was writing pieces before Christmas which were very critical of what was going on at Manchester United and my loyalty is to to tell my readers the truth it's not to be a PR agent for Manchester United but I'd like to think we're sensible we're well balanced we've got a good relationship with a lot of the people at the club Josie Mourinho gave his first interview to us so did Ed Woodward Richard Arnold the MD gave us an interview last year he doesn't do any media at all and I think they trust us. I'm sure that if they read issues, and they do, and they listen to our podcast, I'm sure they won't agree with a lot of the things in there. But we've got a, I think we've got a constructive relationship. Um, last week, for example, I know Manchester United were trying really hard to secure a bigger allocation of tickets for the FA Cup game at Arsenal. And privately, they were disgusted that Arsenal had given them half the number of tickets they should have done. And I think the fans and the club can work together on something like that. But when you're being critical of people, I mean, if, if Romulo Lukaku would have read the last issue, I don't think he would have ever wanted to speak to us again. Mm. But mm. we wouldn't make it personal. If someone's not playing well, then we'll say that. But 
as Giggs once said after after he read a copy to me, if you're playing badly, then you deserve stick. In the same way, if I put a rubbish issue out, people are going to tell me straight away. They're going to say, I paid good money for that, and that was rubbish. So you've got to keep your standards high, whether you're a journalist or or whether you're a footballer. I'm just delighted that 29 years later, people <laughs> buy it with their hard-earned money. Absolutely. Because there's so, there's so much free stuff out there now. So what I try and do is put stuff in there that you would not find anywhere else. Not on not online. Just stuff where you'd think, I didn't know that. So all and these I, bloody millennials who just think everything is free, you know, it wasn't like that in our day. No, you're right. And telling people that, look, this is where the money goes. The lads who sell it outside the ground, they tend to be young Mancunian lads. They use the money to follow Manchester United. You, know, you need money to exist. We've got print bills to pay. It's not yeah. free to print a magazine. And I suppose getting, when, getting when back to... On, Getting to the main reason you're on, when it all unravels with the babyface assassin, is he going to be nice to you in the fanzine, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Because the bubble has obviously burst. They didn't win last night. Ah, uh, uh, well, you're very harsh, Johnny, on that one. No, I'm, I'm, I'm being <laughs> facetious, but uh, it's it's interesting because you know everyone's been so positive. Uh, I I think it's it's just even eight games is nowhere near long enough to assess how Solskjaer will get on. But how have you kind of, um, what's your conclusion after nine games? And he was he was quite critical of the team last night. He said their intensity just wasn't there in the first half. I think if I was giving him a report so far, I'd give him full marks. He's been, he's been excellent. He's lifted the mood. Uh, the fans are much happier. The staff at the club are much happier. And they weren't happy. The players are much happier. I've spoken to several of them. And the mood at the start of December was dreadful. Several players were deeply unhappy to the point that they were quite happy for transfer rumours linking them with clubs like Real Madrid to, to go out there, however fanciful they may have seemed, because Real Madrid had no interest in some of the people that were being linked to. So you were, you're was, actually, the players are trying to kind of slightly spin stories at times when it suits them. I don't think it's players. I think it might be people close to players. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, they were, they were not happy. Paul Pogba was not happy. Marcus Rashford was was not happy, and those two players have been exceptional on under Ole Gunnar. And they had to be because their own reputations were on thin ice with Man United fans. Paul Pogba was not a popular person at Old Trafford among the fans at the start of December. There wouldn't have been that many people too bothered if he would have gone. But now he's been much better. He's playing to his potential. Ole Gunnar. And I've spoke to players about this. Um, he's basically said to them, let opponents worry about us rather than the other way around. The players like the fact that the full-backs are pushed right up. They feel that it opens the pitch up. They feel that, they felt that um, Jose Mourinho was too preoccupied with the opponents and too nervous about protecting his defence to let Manchester United go at opponents and when Ole Gunnar took charge Manchester United had a negative goal difference that, that's ridiculous after 17 matches and when he struggled in the summer transfer window I put a tweet out saying okay it's not gone well but look at all these players at this club and I listed every single one of them and I thought there's a lot of really really good players there the problem was they weren't playing to their reputation, or certainly not to their wage packet, because Manchester United had the second highest wage bill in world football, and still do today. So, Holly Gunners, they're playing well, and, and everything's wonderful. When does the time actually come then, 
Andy, when, when they say, look, you are the man for the job then? Because it, I, I was on the weekend with, with Johnny, actually. We were on the show at the weekend with Johnny and... Um, was it Nathan was on the weekend with us? It was Owen, wasn't Owen, it, actually? Yeah. So, and they were asking the question, do you think you'll have the job? And I said, well, clearly, the board are uncertain at the moment. Clearly, they are doing the work, they're doing behind, uh, everything behind the scenes to try to get him in place. So when does it, is it, is it the players that are going to take the initiative and try and drive that forward? Is it Solskjaer himself? Is it maybe outside influence that they're trying to push him? Do you think he's actually the right man for the job? Or, and when will that time come that they're actually going to make that appointment? Players tend to push for the incumbent. Players pushed for Ryan Giggs to get it before Louis van Gaal. Edward Wood will certainly speak to the, the players. I don't think there would be any objections if Oli Gunnar was appointed full-time now from the players, from the fans, from the staff at the club. But I don't think they need to appoint him full-time now. He knows he's here until the end of the season. I think if you get to the end of March and Manchester United are looking good for fourth, or if they've knocked PSG out, or if they're still in the FA Cup, then you're saying... This is a guy who's achieved results beyond the honeymoon period. Because at the start, he had a relatively easy one. But he beat Arsenal last week. He beat Tottenham away. They're fantastic results. But you're still in this honeymoon period. It would only take three or four bad results for all the doubts to, to resurface. So if he was to finish fourth, that would be a major achievement. And I think he would deserve the job. And not just him, I think Mike Phelan should be kept on as coach because he's a good guy, Mike. He's well-respected. He's a good coach and he's taking training every day. Ollie Gunnar is sitting back up in the office like Alex Ferguson did. And Ferguson's more on the scene now. Ollie Gunnar's speaking to him. David Moyes didn't. George Mourinho didn't. Louis van Gaal didn't. They weren't being disrespectful. They just felt that they wanted to get on with their own job without this big shadow behind them. Is there not just a, a small fear though that the club and the fans, a bit like Kenny Dalglish and his return to Liverpool, that you get slightly wrapped up in nostalgia of you know the warmth and happiness that is inv you know, invoked by just remembering when Solskjaer was a player because his managerial credentials still at this stage are very, very questionable in that he's, just very, he's quite unproven and surely Manchester United should be looking at getting like someone like Rafa Benitez or at least somebody who's really, really proven at the top level. Oh, it's a great shout. I think if you appointed Rafa Benitez tomorrow as Manchester United manager, <laughs> you would see protests outside all traffic. Yeah, I, he's a bad example, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a proven, proven manager yeah, at the top level. And, and, and I, I do actually respect Benitez, but what he did at Valencia and taking Liverpool to win the European Cup is an, it was an incredible achievement. And even at Newcastle, on his resources, he's doing well. I think you've got to give Solskjaer a bit more time. He's doing very, very well. It would be ridiculous if he continues to do well to change something that's working. If, but if it him, works in the course of like half a season, that's not necessarily yeah. working. It's still there's, there has to be a reaction from Mourinho. So say if they finish fourth or fifth with that quality of players, they really should be doing pretty much as close to as well as they are at the moment. Anyway, they've such good players. So he's just bringing the smile back on their face, and maybe he's not doing much more than that. I think half a season is a fair time to judge right. him. I think if, if he's got him into fourth and you're judging him over 30 matches, I think that's, that's a fair trial period. I don't think it's fair in a year, you know, just to keep him going on beyond that. It, it, people were saying after three games, give him the job. I think that's ridiculous. Even now, I would say, just let him carry on playing. You've got some really, really tough matches. If they're going to lose all these tough games then doubts will re resurface. At the moment, you're in this honeymoon period, added to the fact that Pochettino, the man who is fancied to take over, is having a rough time himself. But 
just wait two months. Just see where United are. It's mad, actually, how the pot, the Spurs kind of, um, I don't know, the, the problems they're having has almost directly coincided with Manchester United's revival. Entirely coincidental, but it's kind of, it's just strange that it's happened like that. But, I mean, I suppose going forward, what, what's this season going to bring? And it's interesting as well that there are stories of he has a fairly ruthless nature to him as well. He's apparently after, uh, I think it was the Reading game at halftime, he wasn't happy at all at halftime. The players got maybe their first sight of a guy that wasn't a million miles removed from Alex Ferguson and the hairdryer if he actually wanted to be. That's what the fans want to hear. And I think that's what the players want as well. Oli Gunnar is, is no fool. In the same way that you know, Juan Mata might be the world's nicest man, but he's not got to the level in professional football where that he has by being a soft touch. You've got to have a nasty side to you. And Oli Gunnar's had that. He's using the tools at his disposal to the best of his ability. Why not use someone like Sir Alex Ferguson? Why not go and speak to him after games? And, and that is what he's doing. But he would be a far cheaper option, so that would be attractive to Manchester United. Mm. And Pochettino, who would have been everyone's favourite, I think, uh, in, in December, he's fallen out of favour a little bit. But while fans are extremely loyal, they're also extremely fickle. And I can remember... When Rooney was linked with a move away 2013, there, would not, there was not a one United fan I could find who wanted him to stay. Two and a half weeks later, they were singing his name at Swansea away. So Recency bias. Events yeah, events can change really, really quickly, but Ole Gunnar is doing exceptionally well, and if he carries on doing like this, and he's not going to win every game, he's going to lose some of these matches against these big, big teams. In relation then to the, to the fickle nature of supporters then, you spoke about Pogba and Rashford and there might have been a divided opinion on whether they're going to be serious United players going forward. What are the, yeah, the form has picked up, but is there still an understanding that, look, this might be a bit of a flash in the pan thing? The demographics of Man United support and Liverpool's are really interesting because at the matches, you'll find the fans are more supportive. Even when Mourinho was really struggling, whereas online... I can remember when United were champions a few years ago. They had the audacity not to win an away game at Swansea. And there was like this surge of complaints. It was just ridiculous because you've got gl glory hunters, effectively. People who have only been attracted to glory, thinking that Manchester United should win every single game that they play. I think the club have got to take a longer view, a more sensible view. Because if they listen to some of the online fans, they'd have no players left. They would have all been sold. Marcus Rashford at times this season would have been sold because people have said he's only getting a looking because he's a Mancunian because he's a United fan. He's actually a very good player who is now confident and playing in his preferred position. Every player, as you know, Kevin, has bad times. Lukaku's had a bad time. Sanchez has had a pretty wretched 12 months. Do I think he's finished as a player? No, I don't. I think these people should be given the benefit of the doubt. Even Fred, £52 million. He's, had, he's done nothing so far. I don't think we should sell him. Lindelof, a year ago, some United fans were saying, this guy's a disgrace. He should never have been bought. He should never be there, this famous red shirt. They're not saying it now. I've got emails in my inbox from six weeks ago saying we should get protests. Yeah, I'd be quite funny if I replied to some of them and said, OK, Leicester on Sunday, let's, let's get the protest going against the club. You won't find any support for it. Just just briefly, if you were to call it now, will he be the manager at the start of next season? Yes. Kev? I'm still, honestly, I'm, I'm still undecided. I'm still 
Mm. I am, honestly. Because I think if a big name were to come up, I still, I still think at the moment, I think he'd jump ahead of him. A big name uh, could be taken over at Oldham. Paul Scholes has been linked with yeah. his hometown club. I'm, I'm fascinated by that development because uh, it's just a career that you think this could go either way from. Yeah, I wanted to ask Andy about that. I'm interested to see how, the, how this, this goes. There's huge rumours he has in fact got the job, but there's... Is there is there some sort of conflict of interest in relation to Salford um, Salford uh, City? I think is, is is that right, Andy, at the moment? Yeah, Salford City, the Amis, and if uh, there could be a conflict of interest, which would need to be sorted out, and and Paul knows that, and Oldham know that as well. Paul told me that he wanted to go into management. Um, he lives in Oldham. That? He's told me that pretty consistently over the last over the last year. Uh, he lives in Oldham. He's going to stay living in Oldham. Um, he, he likes going to watch Salford City. He goes to Manchester United sometimes. The problem with Oldham is it's a bit of a basket case of a club. It's not a stable club. Yeah, big time. Because we had like Irish players went over there. Obviously, Jack Byrne has come back. Patrick McElhinney went last season, and uh, it was a case where. Oldham were actually looking for money from an Irish club for McElhinney. They were so desperate for cash and it was it was like reversal of roles because it was normally the Irish clubs that were the basket cases. Well, Oldham seemed a complete mess. Yeah, well, those reports are accurate and that's why Oldham went down for, I think, the first time in 17 years last year. And it, it, it's tight. Um, you had the, the owner who stepped down just over a year ago. You got a new owner come in. You brought lots of predominantly French players in there. You've got a Pretty strong hardcore of about 4,000 people, way down from the Premier League days when they were getting 14,000. But Skull's fancies being a management. If you were saying to him, as Alex Ferguson always did, including Swally Gunnar Solskjaer, go to a club which is stable with a good chairman, Oldham would be the last club you recommend. Yeah. But it's his childhood club. It's, it's also a club that has an upside because they've gone so far down, you know, can things get much worse? Well, they could because Stockport County, who are a similar size club, went down two more divisions. Yeah. And there are big clubs in the conference. Tranmere Rovers get higher average crowds than Oldham Athletic. So do Wrexham. So it really can can happen. And if you've got a chairman who's interfering and telling you which players to pick, that's not great for any manager. The wouldn't what like think, that. Well, he wouldn't. What I think he needs is guarantees. I pick the team. What's my wage bill going to be? And then... If I was speaking to Paul and say, what do you know about fourth division football? Who do you know? Because there are lads in that league who are managing. They know who the, the left back is at Macclesfield Town and the reserve left back. Their, their base of knowledge is very high. And I think Paul would need a good assistant, someone who knows the club and knows the league yeah. very well. I know lads who've managed to hold them really, really well. Friends of mine, people like Dean Holdham, and they had a good run at the start. Um, and last year, Rick Wellings, he was doing very well there. And I know Rick well, and he was he, he was doing really well. He had them moving up the division. And then Didn't these people yeah, don't yeah. slot there. He can always ring Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for advice now to be top manager anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love him to do well because I think Paul, I think he's, he's got a lot of talent. And I think he would make a good manager. But there are so many strands to being a good manager. And, and I said, well, what about dealing with the media? I said, yeah, fine. Don't bother me. Don't bother me. Don't bother me with what people are saying. Well. No manager should be bothered by what people are saying. The problem is, decisions are made by what people are saying. It's because a big if nuance in that. Want a manager out, yeah. the manager tends to be sacked. Andy, thanks for joining us. 
Cheers. Thanks, Andy. Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. And you're welcome back. We're going to get a few full-times, a couple of full-times. Uh, Southampton versus Palace. Ian Wiley. Full-time, Southampton 1, 10-man Crystal Palace 1. Both sides share the spoils. Both move on to 23 points. Both now four points away from the Premier League drop zone. Palace took the lead through Zahar on 40 minutes, who drilled it under McCarthy in the Southampton goal. And they were one in control up until the Southampton equaliser and had the ball in the net through Sacco, but it was ruled out for a foul in the box. But on 77 minutes, great one-touch football from Southampton found Ward-Prowse on the edge of the six-yard box, who did the rest. And then it became frantic towards the end of the game Zahar was sent off for Palace he received a yellow card after scoring up toward Prowse following a challenge and then a second yellow 20 seconds later for sarcastically applauding the referee Armstrong could have nicked it at the end for Southampton but in the end it's all square full time Southampton 1 Crystal Palace 1 Bournemouth versus Chelsea Alan Lewis Bournemouth 4, Chelsea 0. Bournemouth with their first home win over Chelsea since 1988 and they've done it emphatically. Chelsea with a better side in the first half if you can believe it but Joshua King put Bournemouth in front just two minutes after the break. David Brooks doubled the advantage capitalising on a mistake from David Luiz. King then put the result beyond any doubt slotting home his second of the game after some good play from Klein and Stanislas down the right. Charlie Daniels put the icing on the cake in injury time. It's Back-to-back league wins for Bournemouth, a night to forget for Chelsea. Bournemouth 4, Chelsea 0. Looked pretty bleak for Spurs, but they turned it around against Watford. Guy Swindles. Spurs 2, Watford 1. Great fight back by Spurs. Watford took the lead in the first half through Cathcart, and they looked pretty comfortable in holding it. Spurs missed a couple of sitters. Well, Lorente did anyway. Another opportunity was cleared off the line and it looks as if they're running out of time but suddenly the ball fell to Son on the edge of the box he slammed it home to equalise with 10 minutes to go and with two minutes left Lorente well he answered his critics with a thumping header going across the keeper Foster who played so well could do nothing Spurs 2, Watford 1 uh, it is full time at Anfield it's finished 1-1 um, it was a manic game Kev yeah it was um, very good game actually total contrast to last night's game at St James's Park um, but Leicester caused problems in the second half real problems had chances I, the substitutions that club well made I, baffled me I, taking Damari Gray off and taking uh, Madison off they were two key players particularly Damari Gray he was causing problems for Liverpool but good game nonetheless I think Liverpool played really well first half that's what I would say so Klopp's got to look at it as a point gain towards the title, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it could have gone either way, and I think at least uh, they're five points clear, but the title race is definitely not over. Uh, I must mention that this Friday we're going to be in Clonmel previewing Cheltenham with a special Bulmer's Road to Gold event in the Clonmel Park Hotel. Earlier on we asked you, where is Jessica Harrington's yard? What village would you find it in? And the answer is Moon County Kildare. Congratulations to Vincent Brady in Virginia County Cavan. Um, I wouldn't be surprised there are actually a few Vincent Bradys in Virginia County Cavan. So many Bradys in Cavan. But uh, I'm sure Vincent, who actually did text in knows that it is him and he's won a pair of tickets to the event see you down there Vincent and uh, it is the Bulmers Road Gold event the Clamark Park Hotel Clonmel Park Hotel on February the 1st that's this Friday tomorrow morning Off the Ball AM is back at 7.45 on all our social channels tomorrow night we're back at 7pm Nathan will be presenting there'll be John Giles on this week's twists and turns in the title race in the Premier League Colin Fenley in studio a Super Bowl preview ahead of the Rams versus the Patriots this Sunday night in Atlanta and thanks for coming in, Kev. Good man. It's an absolute pleasure, Johnny. It's been a good night. 
Uh, it has been a good night. Tom Dunn is up, up next and we'll chat to you tomorrow. Best of luck. Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store.